We are so thankful you decided to take time out of your day to listen to this sermon. Central to all of our services is gospel-centered teaching led by our senior pastor, Dr. Jeff Warren. Together, we are a church that seeks to follow Jesus every day, and we hope you are drawn closer to Christ as a result of this message. Well, we began in January of 2019, this year, just months ago, talking about this as the year of the Bible. I hope you're enjoying this. I've, I've, I've been ministered to by this. I'm growing in this. I've, I've loved it. And we just came out of this series, What is the Bible? And one of the things that we're discovering is that the Bible, from the very first of Genesis all the way to the last amen of Revelation, is about Jesus. It's about Jesus, his story. His mission, His purpose, and it's calling us to Himself. You know, in that very first message, our pastor referenced John chapter 1. In the beginning, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and what? The Word was God. God incarnate, the Word. And so we're beginning a new series as we make our way into the Easter season, as we, we begin that walk towards Holy Week, the Word spoken by the Word. The incarnate word, Jesus, as he speaks word, as he brings commentary to it. And today, we're going to be beginning in Matthew chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be beginning in the first verse. And I believe this is one of those practical messages that's spoken to me this week. I'm going to trust that it speaks to you. Matthew 4, verse 1. And then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but out of every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You know, this is a generational question here, but how many of you know the name Philip Wilson? Now raise your hands, okay? Some of you are going, Flip who? I don't know what he's talking about. He was a comedian back a number of years ago, and he was funny. He was on all the variety shows. And if you remember, Flip had this alternate personality, Geraldine. You remember Geraldine? Geraldine's always getting into trouble. And Geraldine, when she's confronted by her trouble, would always respond in the same way. The devil, the devil made me do it. Now, Geraldine was married to a reverend. And the rev would come to her, and one day she had bought a new dress, and he had, he had gotten on her, and she said, but the devil made me do it. And he said, Geraldine, how come every time I come to you with this, you tell me the devil made you do something, and it's always to your benefit? What about me? And she said, well, I asked that old devil that, and he said, you tell him, if it wasn't for me, he wouldn't have a job. 
The devil made me do it. And you know, I can remember as a kid just laughing. And you'd hear that all the time. The devil made me do it. And we laugh about it. But the reality is, there's nothing laughable about temptation. There's nothing laughable about the devil coming and whispering in our ear. There's nothing laughable about the consequences of falling into temptation. I found a quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer I'd like to read to you. It just talks about the appeal of temptation. He says, in our members there's a slumbering inclination towards desire which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. All at once a secret, a smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames, and it makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame and power or greed for money. Or finally, that strange desire for the beauty of the world, joy in God, in course, is being extinguished in us, and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. And now his falsehood is added to this reproof of strength. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will, the will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination of decision are taken from us. It is here everything within me rises up against the Word of God. Temptation. If you have your Bibles again, we're in Matthew chapter 4. If you're like me, you like to take notes. And so this first point is a temptation of flesh. As we begin this passage, we see that Jesus is in the wilderness. He's in the wilderness. And I want you to know, he's not there by accident. He just didn't wander in as a course of his ministry. It told us that he was led there by the Spirit. And I want you to note, God is not taken by surprise. God's not taken by surprise. God knows. And not only that, he's not alone. He's been led by the Spirit. He's not alone. And what we need to understand in our life, in those moments of temptation, if we're a follower of Jesus Christ, if we've placed faith and trust in Him, we are never alone. We may feel alone. We may put ourselves in a position where we feel like we're alone, but we need to understand that we're never alone. He's there with us. He's with Jesus here in this wilderness. Now, this wilderness is called the place of uh, devastation. The Old Testament calls it Jeshemon. The devastation. It's a place about 15 by 35 miles. It's a place where Jesus has come for solitude and for fasting to be with the Lord, but it is not a place that you would put on your vacation itinerary. It is jagged, it is dirty, it is sandy. There are limestone rock formations, twisted ridges. Mark adds a little bit of color in his gospel. He says there's wild animals. And this is where Jesus is for those 40 days as he seeks the Father as he fasts. And in verse 2, it tells us something about Jesus. It reminds us He is hungry. We need to be reminded of that because sometimes we forget that Jesus, fully God, is also fully man. And there in His great need, this desire for food, this hunger of the flesh, what do we see? That Jesus is hungry. You know, my wife says, I'm always thinking two meals ahead. And you know what's sad is? 
She's right. I know what I'm having for lunch. I know what I'm having for dinner. I'll have breakfast taken care of by noon today. I'll know these things. Jesus is hungry. He has been without food. And it's at this time he hears that whisper. He hears that whisper. If you're the Son of God, you may take these stones, turn them into bread. Now, the wilderness is filled with all of these rock formations. And one commentator that I read said, those rock formations look strangely like loaves of bread. So think about Jesus. There he is in this physical state of deprivation and hunger. As he looks out, he sees something that looks like bread, and then he hears the voice. If you're the Son of God, if you're the Son of God, a couple of things I'd note. He's called to what would be perceived a victimless temptation. He's alone. Who's going to know? It's a victimless temptation. It's Satan and it's Jesus. And on the surface, is victimless. Satan's telling him, Jesus, there's a way out of this. Jesus, you can fix this. And the reality is, Satan knows exactly who Jesus is. Satan knows who the Son of God is. He knows but he's seeking in this weakness to plant this doubt and to plant within him, you can fix this. And I want you to notice he strikes at Jesus' core identity, the Son of God. Now, prior to this passage in Matthew chapter 3, we see Jesus just prior to going into the devastation is in the river. He's in the Jordan. He's been baptized. Do you remember what happens in the river as he comes out of the water? What does he hear? This is my, this is my son, my beloved son. That's the identity. He is the son of God, and yet Satan's coming saying, if you're the son of God. And the same thing happens to us. In those moments of temptation, we forget who we belong to, whose we are. And we need to remind ourselves, if we are a Christian, if we've placed faith, we are the beloved daughter and sons of God. Don't fall for the tempter's lies. Don't try to take matters into your own hands. Don't try to make things right apart from him. He's going, Jesus, you can make it better. And he says the same thing to us. And if you remember back in the Genesis series, when we were in the garden, what was Satan's temptation to Adam and Eve? He plants just that word of doubt. God is what? Withholding. God doesn't care. You know, I've been going through the Scripture readings with the church, and we're just now coming out of Deuteronomy. And what's happened all across these wilderness journeys? It's the same refrain. The children of Israel are looking, and they're saying, God, you do not care. You don't care. You don't care that we're starving. You don't care that we're wandering. And they forget all the benefits of God bringing them out of the nation of Egypt. But I want you to look in verse 4. How does Jesus answer? He says, it is written, the Word of God, Deuteronomy 8.3, man must not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And here you have the Word of God answering with the Word of God, a word of faith and hope and trust. It's a temptation of the flesh, and it has the promise of being a private temptation. A private temptation, nobody will know. You know, on Friday, I had this message kind of ruminating in my mind, and I was coming into the office to work on it, and I picked up the Dallas Morning News. 
Now, I don't know if any of you still pick up a physical newspaper, but we get it on the weekends, and I was looking at it, and in the A section, and maybe I was a little more sensitive, there were stories of people all across the life of our community that had had a moment of private temptation, a moment of lust of the flesh, a moment of greed, a moment of desire for power and control. And as you read each of those stories, what you saw is what was meant to be private was now a public disgrace all across the pages of the morning news. And that's the tactic of the enemy, to get us to think this is private. No one will ever know. No one will ever know. And Jesus gives us the answer. It is written. It's the Word of God. The Word of God. I don't know how many of you are following along in the Scripture app, the Read Scripture app. I've been surprised at how many people are. Now, if you don't have the ability to do that, you don't have a smartphone, we always print it within the bulletin. You can just follow it each week as you go through. But I've loved doing this, and I'm going to be a little confessional now. You know what my favorite parts of it is? As I read through it and we get through the psalm, as I complete the psalm, a little circle appears. And what's in that circle? There's a check mark. I just hate to tell you, I guess I'm just dull. I get a rush when I push that check. Something in my life is done. It seems like so much is never done. I enjoy that. But you know, there's a danger there. And the danger is that we read Scripture out of duty, that we do it to check it off of my list, that I do it so that I can look at our pastor when he asks the staff and when he asks me, are you reading the Scripture? And I can look at him and hold my head up and say, yes, I am. Yes, I am. But the whole desire of this read Scripture is for us to see the drama of the Bible from Genesis through Revelation, but really to develop a deeper intimacy with God and to build the Word of God within us. Because in that day of temptation, what does Jesus teach us? It is the Word of God that we turn to. It's the Word of God. The Word of God. If you haven't started reading, it's in your bulletin today. Just pick it up and take it home and join us. You're going to be joining us in Joshua. You've missed all of the genealogies. God bless all of you. If you haven't downloaded the app, you can go ahead and download it. Just go to Joshua. You can catch up with the Pentateuch later on. But I would encourage you, be a part of it, because what it's doing is it's just building within us the discipline of Scripture, and again, it's bringing us closer to the heart of God, and it's giving us the opportunity to hide His Word in our heart. But there's also a second temptation here. Verse 5, there's a temptation of pride. A temptation of pride. We see that Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. Now, different people have speculated where it was on the temple. Some would say it's on the southeast corner because there's a 450-foot drop there. That's big. Our steeple only goes up 295 feet. That'd be big. That'd make a statement, wouldn't it? There are others that say, no, it was probably at the... um, top of the sanctuary with a 150-foot drop down to the court of priests. doesn't matter. It's a temptation. And the temptation, again, is to go outside the Father's will in His ministry. Because Jesus is going to go to the temple, but He's not going to go with the show. He's going to go with truth. And so He looks at Jesus and says, if, if you're the Son of God, and He tempts Him to step off of that steeple. And this time again, He changes His tactic. He knows Scripture as well. He quotes from Psalm 91. 
Now, I went home the other day, and I pulled out Psalm 91, and then I pulled out what Satan said, and he quotes it with one omission. He leaves out just a little bit, and it twists it just enough. And there's the power again of this word, if. Jesus, if you're the Son of God, you show us how committed you are. You show us how committed he is to you. You show us how committed he is to you. And what we need to understand is that this need for power that so many of us have, really all of us had, to control our environment, if done outside the will of God, will never be met. Our desires, our needs, whether they're fleshly or, again, if they're about our place in society, will only be fully met within the will of God. You can write that down, only within the will of God. And that's what Jesus does because Jesus, once again, he comes and he says, it is written, and he quotes Scripture yet once again. As I was preparing for this, Travis Cook sent me a quote by George Patton. Now, my dad was in the Third Army, and he marched all across Europe, and so I was intrigued. I looked at it, and Patton says this, and I thought this kind of just describes pride. I do not fear failure. I only fear the slowing up of the engine inside of me, which is pounding. It's saying, you keep going. You keep going. Someone must be on top. Why not you? Why not you? You know, there's this drive within us, and we might call it determination or guts or grit. It's a determination that's so often applauded by our culture, but what the Bible calls that is pride. He calls it pride. And we live in a culture that is constantly pushing us and challenging us to be more and to do more. Well, this past Wednesday night, our pastor called us to an Ash Wednesday gathering in the Great Hall. If you weren't there, I'd put it on my calendar for next year. I'm sure we'll do it again. And in that message, he talked about during this season that we're called to a time of restraint. And he talked about just the push of our society and our culture to get ahead. And he said, you know, the Lenten season is actually an opportunity for us to take a step back, to slow down, to seek the Lord. And he began to talk about fasting. But in this, he talked about a cardiologist by the name of Meyer Friedman. And Dr. Friedman has coined something he calls hurry sickness. And hurry sickness is just this ongoing desire and push to do more and to be more. And it, it, it just it kind of infects us. And what he says is it's leading to more cardiac disease than we've ever seen, more heart problems than we've ever seen. And what can happen is as we fall to this temptation of pride to achieve, to be more, we can be called to sacrifice so much of what makes life precious, our families, our relationships, our spiritual health, our relational health. And we're called to sacrifice it to that again, which can never satisfy apart from the will of God. There's a call there of pride. There's a temptation to it. And as my understanding of the gospel is, the gospel is never about my reputation, my prestige, and my glory. This past week, I, I pulled a report that had been published, and it was commissioned by a church that I've had respect for over the years. It was a report that detailed uh, a failure, a, a moral failure. And they brought in an independent group to help them understand what indeed happened. 
Now, if this was isolated, it would be tragic, but as compounded by failures all across these last decades of, of high-profile ministries. There's nothing wrong with being a high-profile ministry, but what can happen is the temptation to believe it's about us, our power, our invincibility. You may be sitting there saying, you know, you pastors, you preachers, you need to get it together, and you're right. But as I read the morning news, it stretches all across society, all across culture, and it begins with us. It begins with us. And knowing how to answer the temptations that come our way, and what Jesus tells us is, answer it with Scripture. It is written. And he says here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You know, at Park Cities, we say that we are called to follow Jesus every day, right? Well, what does that look like? What does it look like to follow Jesus every day? Well, we've been talking about the discipline of building Scripture, and that will help you as you follow Jesus. But this past November, we did the Rediscover series, and in that series, our pastor talked about three irreducible questions that we should always be asking ourselves. So as we sit in this sanctuary today, we ought to be listening to the Word of God and asking, God, what are you saying to me? Because if you're a believer, He's speaking to you. He's speaking to you. As I did this message, God spoke to me. I know Stephen Carroll well enough to know that right now God's speaking to his heart. He's speaking something different to Stephen than he spoke to me. I saw Larry Bird earlier before this service. Right now, God's speaking to Larry Bird, and it's different from what Stephen heard. And we could go all the way around this room, and we'd be hearing the same word, but God is speaking a different word to us at the very point of need that we bring. And so whether we're in a Sunday School Connect group, whether we're in a worship service, or you're reading your Bible each and every day, we ought to be asking, God, what are you saying to me? But there's the second question. How will I obey? It's not just enough to hear from God. We have to act upon it. We have to take that step. That's why we say, what? Follow Jesus every day. It's an active, ongoing relationship. And we ask God, how might I obey? And then there's that word of accountability. Whom will I tell? Whom will I tell? And what we're doing again is we're building the discipline of what it means to follow Jesus every day day. Every day. We do it through the reading of Scripture. We do it through coming together in worship and lifting our hearts. But we do it coming also into small groups and community. I'd encourage you, if you are not attending a Connect group, a Sunday school class, you're missing part of the ongoing beauty of being a part of Park City's Baptist Church. You need to be in a group. So I thought about this. I thought about this encounter right here with Satan. How did we know about it? How do we know about this? There's only two, and Satan got beat. He's not talking about it. Jesus told us. He told it to his disciples. In fact, he told it in such a way that both Matthew and Luke recorded in great detail this interaction. Mark references it. He probably did it at the end of the day. They're around a campfire. They're talking about what's been happening, what, what went right, what went wrong. And Jesus recounts how he dealt with this temptation and the importance of the Word of God. 
They did it in community. They did it together. And one of the great, great tools against pride is, is the opposite of isolation. It's community. It's being together. There's a third temptation. It's a temptation of power. Look in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I'm going to give to you if you'll fall down and you will worship me. What you see here, again, is there's this temptation of pride and power of a false kingdom. And what Jesus knew, what Satan knew is, Jesus already had those kingdoms. They were his. They were his. He was trying to uh, trick him into a false kingdom, a kingdom without the cross, a kingdom without victory. And as we go through the Gospels, you're going to notice that all across the Gospel story, we see that Jesus time and time again is confronted with the easy way out. Saw one yesterday, Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is preparing the disciples to go into Jerusalem. He's preparing them for what's going to happen. And at one point, it says that Peter took him aside and Peter rebuked him. That's the word. Peter rebuked him. He says, oh, no, Lord, this is not going to happen to you. Oh, no, Lord, not you. And it says that Jesus rebuked Peter. But listen to how he rebukes him. He doesn't say, Peter, that's enough. He says, get thee behind me, what? Satan. Again, there's that subtle whisper, the whisper of the deceiver. There's another way. There's another way, Jesus. Get thee behind me, Satan. You're looking at man's concerns, not God's concerns. And then he answers here in this passage, Matthew 4, verse 8. As he's being promised the kingdoms of the world, Jesus says, It is written, You worship the Lord your God, and on him only will you serve. Again, it is a quotation from Deuteronomy. So what do we do? What do we do with this? James chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. First part of that, God opposes the proud. Humble yourself. The mark of a follower of Jesus is humility. How do I resist the enemy? How do I resist the deceiver? You humble yourself before the Lord. You seek him. You seek him in his word. You seek him in worship. You seek him in community. Secondly, we fill ourselves with the Spirit. We allow the Spirit to fill us. We allow the Spirit to fill us. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians commands us, be filled with the Spirit. Now, Luke in his gospel, talking about this encounter in the devastation, he phrases something a little bit differently. Matthew says that when Jesus went into the wilderness, he was taken there by the Spirit. But Luke adds a little bit more color to it. He says, Jesus full of the Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. We're to be filled with the Spirit. We're to be seeking the Lord. We seek Him again in all the ways that we've spoken about. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians chapter 3, he talks about uh, the prayer of the church. What does he say for the church? Our pastor said this is his prayer for our church. 
You can look at it, Ephesians 3.14, do it later on. But in it, he's talking about being filled with the Spirit, living out the Spirit's work within us. He goes on to the Ephesians church in Ephesians chapter 6, and he talks about the Word of God. And it's there he's talking about how do we fight temptation. And he gives us the helmet and the shield. And you know that passage, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. All of the things that he tells us that we are to put on are defensive, with one exception. He says in verse 17, to take the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. That's offensive. And what we see here in this passage today is that Jesus uses the Spirit. He uses the Word of God. And I love how Paul couples that. Spirit and Word, Word and Spirit. Our pastor's been talking about that all across these months as we've gone through the Bible. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And what we see here is the incarnate God in Jesus uses the written Word of God to defeat the enemy. And His victory can be our victory. His victory. So let me give you a couple of more verses and we'll be closing. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. If you're here and temptation just seems to follow you around, guess what? It's all of us. He says, God is faithful and He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Earlier, you heard about Jack when he was reading from Hebrews. And what does it say? That Jesus, that Jesus, our great high priest, can sympathize with our weakness because in every respect, he's been tempted as we are. What did James say? He said, resist the devil and he will flee. He'll flee. Peter talks about the devil as a roaring lion. But remember, more often than not, he's the beautiful serpent. We don't see him coming, and he whispers in our ear, and he tries to deceive us and tries to just bring us down in life. So we see here in this passage, Jesus answers the tempter with the word. Finally, in verse 10, Jesus says to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Resist the devil, and he will flee says he left. The Gospel of Luke, it says, but he was waiting for another opportunity. It's not a one-and-done deal. It's not a one-and-done deal, and that's the way, uh, the reason why that we continue to follow Jesus each and every day. You may be here today, and you may have come to a place where you know that you've fallen. Then this is a day of hope. This is an opportunity to come to the Lord, to confess and ask Him to help you, to help you build these disciplines. This is a day. This is a great day for you. And I would encourage you, take this opportunity to take a fresh start. You may be here today and you've never come to faith in Jesus. This is the day. The Bible says this is the day of salvation. You know what the tempter will whisper in our ears? But not today. Not today. He's not going to deny it. He's just going to say, not today. Today can be the day. Today can be the day to take your stand for Jesus. In 1858, there was a great revival that was sweeping the churches of the Northeast, and in Philadelphia, an awakening 
began. There was a pastor there, Dudley Ting. Dudley Ting was speaking before 5,000 men one day at lunch, and at one point in his message, he held up his right arm and said, I'd rather have my right arm removed at the stump than fail to declare God's word to you. At the end of that lunch, and a thousand men stepped forward. They took their stand for Christ. The next week, Dudley had gone to a farm. There was a, an implement there he wanted to see. It was a mule-drawn corn thresher. He was fascinated by it, just fascinated by it. And he reached out as he was getting ready to leave, and he patted the, the mule. But as he did, his sleeve got caught in the thresher, and he, before he could stop it, it pulled his hand and his arm into it, and his arm was mangled beyond repair. They rushed him to the hospital, but they had to amputate it. But the story didn't end. Sepsis set in. His friends and family were called to his bedside. And his dying words were, you go back to the church and you tell them, stand up for Jesus. Stand up for Jesus. You go back and you tell them that. One of his friends was there and he took those words. He put them to verse. Later they were put to music. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, you soldiers of the cross. Lift high the royal banner, it must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory, this army shall he lead, till every foe is vanquished, and Christ is Lord indeed. Our opportunity today is to take our stand for Jesus. I would encourage you, if you're here today and you've never placed faith in Jesus, today is the day. Take your stand. If you're here today and you... You just feel shackled by temptation. Today's the day. We'd love to talk with you. Following this service out there in the Narthex lobby, I'll be there, others will be there. We'd love to talk with you. If you just want someone to pray with you, we'd love to be able to do that. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather and to declare once again your greatness, your love. Father, we thank you that we see in Jesus there's an answer to that which besets us. And so, Father, I pray today that we would listen to your Spirit's voice. Your Spirit's voice. Ask how we might obey and that we might follow you. I'm going to ask if you would, just keep your heads bowed. If you would, just consider all that we've spoken about this day. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. Come and join us as we seek to follow Jesus every day. We meet every Sunday at 9.15 a.m. for our small group Bible studies called Connect Groups and 10.45 a.m. for worship. We hope to see you soon at Park City's Baptist Church.